If you are receiving this transmission, you are reclaiming the faith with Phil Baker on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Welcome to episode 24 of Reclaiming the Faith, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. I'm your host, Phil Baker. Now let's dig into history. Hey everyone, thank you so much for taking time to listen to Reclaiming the Faith. Thank you also for your prayers for me and for my podcasting partners, BDK and Justin Fall. We seriously appreciate them so, so much. This week, we're diving into part two of my four-part interview with Dan Enright about how Christians evangelized in the first century. In episode 24, we go back to the beginning to demonstrate how we see Christ in Genesis through Deuteronomy, which is referred to as the Torah or Pentateuch. Dan is a professor at the Bible Seminary in Houston, Texas, and is also the community group's pastor at my church. This is an inspirational and educational interview that you don't want to miss. Well, if you're blessed by this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you'd leave an honest review on my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith. Also, if you have any questions, please feel free to contact me at my website, reclaimingthefaith.podbean.com, or you can email me at emailphilsbaker at gmail.com. In 2016, I wrote a book called New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ, and you can find this book on Amazon. If it's a blessing to you, please leave an honest review there. I'm blessed to be a part of Justin Fall's Fourth Watch Radio Network, along with BDK of Omega Frequency, who I do a monthly Q&A show with called Ready With An Answer. You can contact BDK at omegafrequency.com, and you can send in questions for that Q&A show there. In addition to our own channels, you can find each of our podcasts at fourthwatchradio.com or on the Fourth Watch Radio podcast. And finally, the early Christian quotes that I use can be found on the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers, and you can purchase your copy for a mere $5 on the Scroll Publishing website, scrollpublishing.com. All right, well, let's dive into episode 24, part two of First Century Evangelism with Dan Enright. All right, we're back with Dan Enright. Dan uh, gave us an awesome introduction to uh, our topic of seeing Christ in the Old Testament last time. And now this time we are going to, in this episode, we're going to be looking at Jesus in the first five books of the Bible, which are called the Torah or the Pentateuch. And so, Dan, it's so great to have you back on, buddy. Thanks, Phil. Yeah, man. Are you Good ready to, to go? You, you ready to do this? You bet. All right, man. So let's let's jump into the Torah. Sure. Why don't you tell me um, a few passages that have really stuck out to you that lead people to Jesus? That whether they're prophecy-based passages or typology-based passages, what are some passages that 
you feel are really just key to helping lead people to Jesus? I, I think foundationally, one major passage that comes to mind for me at least is in Genesis 315. Mm. And this is this passage is often referred to as what they call the proto euangelium mm. um, and yeah. the first gospel first gospel yeah um, and it's the first time that um, that is mentioned in the entire Bible both both testaments mm. um, that there's going to be an individual who who comes out of this mess mm. that was or comes after this mess that was created in the garden with uh, with um, the sin of Adam, and things are going to be set right. Hmm. What 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 happened in the garden was universally cataclysmic hmm. uh, when when man sinned, and from that point on, um, God decides that He's going to do something about it, hmm. and what is revealed in Genesis 3.15 is that there's going to be a a hostility that is created between two parties. Um, One party, or two parties in a general sense, speaking of of groups of people, Mm. two groups of people, and then more specifically, um, two individuals. And so in Genesis 3.15... You want to read that? Sure, I'll, I'll back up a little bit. Okay. Um, after uh, the Lord appears, uh, uh, Adam has the woman had sinned. Adam, man, the man, had sinned. Uh, the Lord comes um, to the garden and finds that uh, Adam and his wife are are hiding. Um, of course, they had had created. Uh, fig leaves and covered themselves and in, 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 in essence hiding from each other at this point so something had gone wrong drastically there was yeah. an interruption a, a massive interruption in the relationship between God and his uh, creatures hmm. um, the man and the woman so and, and we know that in the midst of all, all that there was the serpent right that uh, was was involved in this and deceiving the woman, and so when God finally starts to bring everybody to account, He starts with the serpent, and um, and He says to the serpent, "Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring." He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So right there is an indication of God's remedy to this situation that, that sin brought to creation. Mm. And it involves a, um, an individual, ultimately. Mm. And the thing with this particular verse is when, when you start to get into the, the Hebrew of it, um, and you start translating these these words, um, you come up with some some different uh, genders, some different um, senses of these words. And it wasn't until 
they translated this into the Greek in the Septuagint. Right. Uh, about, you know... Three, 200 B.C. Yeah. yeah. 250, 200 B.C. That, we, that things really started to kind of be clear on, on what this really says. Yeah. Um, and when it says that I will put enmity between you and the woman, when God says this, and between you and your, your offspring and her offspring... Those words, offspring, are the word seed. Yeah. And they're what they call collective singulars. Mm. So it could, basically, it, it alludes to groups, mm. two groups. And the the gender, and uh, I'm sorry if I'm getting too technical. No, no, here, no, go ahead. But man. the gender of, of seed is, it's it's neuter. Right. But when we look uh, further on in the in the verse, so it's male and female, or male or female, right? When yeah. you come, when it comes to a gender, right, uh, or a number, when it uh, and, and nouns, yep, you have your masculine, you have your feminine, you have your neuter, right? Well, offspring or seed is is neuter, like they, like they, yeah, yeah, exactly, yep. So when you get down to the next two verses, he shall bruise your head, and and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, those pronouns there are interesting because in the Greek language what should follow are neuter genders mm-hmm. in both of those pronouns. Right. What what happened when they translate, when the uh, translators of the Hebrew into Greek that ended up being the Septuagint, when they did their work, they didn't follow that path. They broke all grammatical rules mm. of um, of Greek translation, yeah, because it's so many other times through the Book of Genesis we have this uh, this dynamic where the pronoun stays neuter, yeah, because it's attached to the the antecedent, which is you know up there the offspring, right? Um, so the fact that they assigned masculine singular, yeah, to those pronouns he indicates that coming off of a collective singular, it's it's going to narrow down to actually an individual who's going to accomplish this. An individual male. A male. Yeah. Yes. And that's so, cool. Like, the Septuagint is basically the Bible that Jesus and the apostles read, too. Mm-hmm. So it's the common people Bible. Right. Yeah. And so this is really interesting they, how they, they take time to clarify certain things where it was maybe a little bit ambiguous. They They zero in on certain things for the reader. Yeah, for the common people, which is really good. It is, yeah. and it's it's all by by doing this again, having this construction throughout the Book of Genesis. They followed that pattern mm-hmm. where, if if a, a, an antecedent is neuter, then the following pronoun that relates to that mm. word behind it, they keep it in that same gender. Yeah. This they broke the rules. It's the only place in the Book of Genesis that this happens. Mm. And it's almost as if when they when they translated the Hebrew, they saw something messianic right. in this passage. Yeah. So it's to me that is foundational. This is like this is the story in mm. in in seed form, yeah. almost literally. Yeah. But this is God's decision to to make things right after the fall of man. And it starts right there, and that's foundational. So from this point, this starts to build, and we start to um, see this person become more defined as yeah. we work through the law, through the 
the prophets and through the writings. Yeah. Oh man, my computer just dinged. I need to turn that off. So you see this offspring like being challenged a little bit in Genesis 6, you know, Satan trying to maybe thwart this prophecy. Mm -hmm. Then you see like Genesis 12, God moving this offspring through Abraham. And then you see in one of his great descendants toward the end of Genesis in chapter 49, Mm -hmm. some promises being made from Israel, from Jacob, to his kids and to his grandkids. So you want to speak on that a little bit? Sure. Genesis 49 is another text in the uh, Torah, uh, specifically in the book of Genesis, that starts to um, clarify this individual that's being talked about in Genesis 3. And at this point... um, Jacob is blessing his sons. And when he comes to Judah, he says something uh, really special about Judah. Judah would um, basically rise to a place of prominence among the tribes. Hmm. And it essentially became the the royal tribe. Hmm. And when uh, Jacob gives his blessing uh, on, on Judah, He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Um, So what we start to see is this this kingly figure, this ruler, Mm. uh, who seems to be um, put in a place of, of a universal type of rulership and the scepter we, we see these words like scepter mm. ruler staff it speaks of 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 royalty it's not just some guy it's, it's not king. just some guy yeah it's a king and the the there are different translations as far as this verse goes uh, that one phrase until tribute comes to him but the best one that I think translators have been able to come up with is is until he comes to whom it belongs hmm. talking about the scepter talking about that ruler's staff hmm. so again we're looking at an individual until he comes yeah to whom it belongs so we have judah um set up in a, in a place of prominence and, and we see throughout the tanakh moving forward that the 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 kingly line, mm. the um, the rightful kingly line, came down the line of Judah. Yeah, that was the tribe of Judah. Right. And so, what Jacob is blessing his son Judah with, and actually foreseeing, foretelling, foretelling, is that there's going to be one that comes from the uh, tribe of Judah who will hold that scepter, who will hold that ruler's staff. And not only be um, worshipped and elevated by Israel, but the entire world. Yeah. And that's we're, that'll be more developed when we get into the writings, into Psalms. Yeah. And also in the prophets. 
with like in the prophets micah <laughs> micah yeah yeah micah yeah. 5 2 right that's right yeah the king's gonna come out of bethlehem yeah yeah absolutely whose goings forth have been from everlasting yeah from ancient times right yeah, yeah. how does it <laughs> how's the messiah going to also be from time immemorial you know right that's crazy. It is. Yeah, he's an eternal. And so John kind of picks up on that. In the yeah. beginning was the word. Yeah, so as, yeah. We, as we work through the Tanakh, we start to see, again, this unfolding, if you will, of the um, identity of this person yeah. who we'll see in the prophets referred to as the branch the yeah. servant, the root. Um, but it all starts, again, in Genesis 3.15. Yeah. Works through uh, one of this particular passage here, 49, Genesis 49.10, and then on into um, the New Testament. And it's cool, though, how God, even in the Tanakh, is not just reaching out to uh, the Jews, but he's also reaching out to Gentiles in some ways. Like, he will speak through a witch <laughs> begrudgingly like a warlock basically yeah you know he'll prophesy through a warlock that's crazy but it just like shows god's heart to reach out even to his enemies mm -hmm. so i know you wanted to touch on that numbers 24 17 passage which is actually balaam talking yes yeah balaam of course was was called uh, by Balak to curse Israel uh, as, as they settled on the plains of Moab, getting ready to cross the Jordan into the land of, of promise. Um, Balak became um, pretty intimidated, uh, was fearful uh, because of their numbers, the size of, of Israel. So he called in a professional... Um, prophet so to speak yeah um, a diviner yeah the most famous one around yeah yeah to come in and say hey i want you to to curse israel for me and um and the lord didn't allow it and when we get to um one of the oracles that that balaam has for balak uh, let's see is that the this was the final oracle of, of Balaam and uh, this is how it how it goes uh, starting in uh, Numbers 24 verse 15 the oracle of Balaam son of Beor the oracle of the man whose eye is open the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered so he's got some clout. <laughs> the Lord has, has yeah. put it on him. Yeah. And he's, I'm going to tell you exactly what, um, what I see, what I hear. And here it is, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter. There's that word again, scepter. Um, and it, it, it gives a sense of rulership. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. 
Seir also, his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the city. So we see here this star. This hmm. is totally messianic. Yeah. Um, even in um, early second century Judaism, uh, when we when we came to uh, the the Bar Kokhba revolt, hmm. 130, 132 A.D. Yeah. Uh, under um, against Emperor Hadrian. Yeah. Uh, Simeon ben Judah, but the the um, it was taken back to this text, right? To assign Simeon ben Judah as this as the star, yeah, from Numbers twenty four seven. So this is another one of those, and you can texts. see that paralleling also with uh, the Genesis forty nine passage with him being the son of Judah. You know, sure, yeah, yeah. So absolutely, you're like, oh, maybe this could be the guy. Yeah. Yeah. So so Balaam had this this oracle like I see him. Yeah. But not yet. He's not near yet, but he's coming. Yeah. So out of Israel is going to come this this ruler. Hmm. Um and Jeremiah 48 and or yeah, 48 through 49 repeats this pro- prophecy uh of yet future from his time. Yeah. So there may be this tendency to assign somebody in the course of the, the, the kings that, that came down through Judah. But even in Jeremiah's time, when Zedekiah was the last king of Judah before mm. Babylon completely destroyed, yeah, even at that point, they're still looking for this star. Yeah. They're still looking for him. And so this is another indication of um, uh, more revelation, so to speak, yeah. of, of, of an individual coming who's going to, uh, to rule set things right yeah and so it's cool like how god would like kind of tip his hat to this passage in the birth narrative of jesus that you have this star coming to hover over like leading people to to the place of jesus's birth great point yeah you bet yeah man you know i'm i'm really into the early christians and the early christians were really into um the Septuagint, that was their Bible also. And so one of the cool things, like when I started reading their writings that they they latched onto really quick is um, Moses' helper, Joshua, and the Septuagint is actually Jesus. That's the mm-hmm. way they translated his name in Greek is Jesus. And so like to an early Christian, they're seeing this Jesus figure lead people into the promised land and they're like yes mm-hmm. yes so they're they're working with a lot of typology a lot and um like shadows of christ you know kind of thing mm-hmm. like it's it's kind of what the book of hebrews in a lot of sense is doing sure it's doing a lot of typology um but there's this cool passage that justin martyr around 160 writes and he's he's referencing a scene from the book of numbers a little bit earlier uh than balaam but he's talking about this scene where israel is called to fight against amalek and so i'm just going to read a little bit of justin real quick he says when the people waged war with amalek and the son of nave he's talking about joshua the son of nave or none 
by the name Jesus. He just flat out says it by the name Jesus, who is Joshua. Yeah. He led the fight. Well, Moses himself prayed to God, stretching out both hands and her with Aaron supported them during the whole day. So he's like, Moses is basically like making the sign of the cross, Hmm. right? So that they may not. um, So Aaron and her supported Moses' hands during the whole day so that they might not hang down when he got wearied, when he was tired. For if he gave up any part of this sign, if Moses like stopped making the sign of the cross, which was an imitation of the cross, uh, Justin writes, the people were beaten, as is recorded in the writings of Moses. But if he remained in this form, in the form of the cross, Amalek was proportionally defeated, and he who prevailed prevailed by the cross. For it was not because Moses so prayed that the people were stronger, but because while one who bore the name of Jesus was in the forefront of the battle, he himself made the sign of the cross. For who of you knows not that the prayer of the one who accompanies it with lamentations and tears, with a body prostrate or with bended knees, propitiates God most of all? But in such a manner neither he nor anyone while sitting on a stone prayed, nor even the stone Sorry, nor even the stone symbolized Christ, as I have shown. Uh, so it's it's really neat um, that Joshua, sorry, that Justin makes this this uh, typological point, kind of like we or so many pastors will make when they talk about Abraham offering Isaac. Now that's like a symbol of like Isaac willingly letting himself be killed. That's like a pointing, it's pointing to Jesus. Mm-hmm. The New Testament makes that point nowhere. It nowhere references that. That's and right. yet it, it's so obvious, yes. right? That God is like, hey guys, check this out. You're going to need this later. You know, this is definitely pointing to my son. That's all over the Tanakh. It, it points so many times to Jesus in different ways. Mm-hmm. So uh, this kind of stuff really excites me. Did you have any thoughts on that passage or that, uh, that writing? Genesis from- 22? Uh, because I, you know, even the, the, the same geographical area, you know, Moriah, go to the land of Moriah. Yeah. And we see that you yeah, know, of course, Solomon yeah. built the temple on Mount Moriah. It, yeah. The same location. The threshing floor of Arana. Yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. There are things that we can see in the New Testament as direct fulfillments by mm. Jesus. Yeah. Right? The virgin birth, the location of his birth, mm. his predecessor, John the Baptist. Yeah. Um, his passion. Yeah. All that kind of stuff. But there are things that I think God has woven through the scriptures that might not necessarily be noted in the New Testament for, is concerning things in the, in the Tanakh or Hebrew Bible right. where we go, there is definitely a connection. There. <laughs> yeah, right. you, you brought up the, um, the, um, when Jesus calmed the, the, the storm. storm on yeah. the Sea of Galilee. Right. You know, the, and we talked about how the point of that was to take the disciples' minds back to Psalm 107. Right. You know, and nowhere in that passage in, in the in the account as it's written in Mark, 
does it say, and Jesus did this to fulfill Psalm 107. Right. But we know, yeah. right? So it doesn't have to say that. And I think that the, the Hebrew Bible is just littered with this kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's really our joy and blessing to go in and start digging this out. And, and I think it puts a smile on God's face hmm. when we become just more and more in awe of, of Him and, and through that just grow in our, in our love for Him. And that Psalm 107 reference is such an awesome segue into our next section where we're going to talk about how we see Jesus in the writings um, and particularly like in the Psalms for our next section. So, Dan, thanks so much for, for being with us. Yeah, man. Thank All you, right. Phil. See you next time. Yeah. Shit.